0: The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Kenneth Brower is an American environmental writer and has written a number of books about the environment, national parks, and natural places. He authored the series The Earth's Wild Places, which was published by Friends of the Earth in the 1970s. His most widely read book on Yosemite is in over 1,200 WorldCat libraries. Many of his books have been published by the National Geographic Society, and several have been translated into Japanese, German, Spanish, and Hebrew. Ken is the oldest son of the late environmentalist David Brower, founder of several organizations such as Friends of the Earth and Earth Island Institute, and also served as the first executive director of the Sierra Club. Point Reyes National Seashore is a prominent cape and popular Northern California tourist destination on the Pacific coast. It is located in Marin County, approximately 30 miles northwest of San Francisco. Ken grew up an advocate for Point Reyes since his father, then executive director of the Sierra Club, was instrumental in Kennedy signing national seashore authorizing legislation. Today, Point Reyes is at risk from a threat no one expects to exist in a national seashore or any national park. So before we get started, we're here to talk about a very serious issue. I have to start with something a little bit less serious, a lot more fun probably for most people when they're thinking about what we're about to talk about. Uh, And that is, you know, I've read your book Wildness Within and I think I snuck it off Dave's shelf, Dave Foreman's shelf um, before a river trip some years ago. But I doubt most people will bring up what I consider one of the most important pieces of writing in modern conservation history. And that is on the power of the Sierra Club Cup in Sierra Magazine. And I I don't know if you even remember even writing such an article. <laughs> I do remember writing it,
1: and I of course I remember Sierra Club Cups having grown up with them. Yeah, I just love that
0: article. So thanks for writing it.
1: Well, oh, you're welcome. I, um, you know, I'm loyal to the cup. I I did a story for National Geographic in Wrangell-St. Elias, and and the the um, guide who took me and the photographer around the that country. Refused to allow us to bring Sierra Club cups. He hated Sierra Club cups, um, because of course they're in a way they're horrible cups. They they get, they burn you and they they get cold quickly. But you can't tell that to, to an old Sierra Club hand. And so I got, I got kind of indignant, but I I did as he said. I, I brought a non-Sierra Club cup,
0: grudgingly against uh, against your religion, really, against what my dad used to call the religion. Yep. yeah. I think Dave described at one point, and I don't know if this is actually true, but uh, uh, your dad draping a whole steak over that cup and not being able to see the cup anymore. That may have been one of those embellishments, but I can't get that picture. I've never been able to get that picture out of my head because I've heard other people tell the story about that, the darn Sierra Club cup. And (laughs) I always remember Dave's telling of his experience with that. I think I may even be in the John McPhee book on
1: my dad, uh, the uh, the State grape draped over the cup. Um, you know, my dad had a group, he admired Dave as much as anybody uh, he knew, and uh, and in a way, Dave took over that. My dad's sort of a, a radical position in the movement. and um the story that he used to tell all the time is is um Russ who was was uh, the Secretary of Interior for Nixon, uh, was sort of a friend and an enemy. And he said once, uh, thank God for Dave Brower. He makes it uh, so easy for the rest of us to appear reasonable. Yeah. And my dad just loved that. He took that as a compliment. And he, he said, now um, uh, now we have Dave Foreman to make me look unreasonable. Um, now, <laughs> a- after this, we've got to find somebody to make Dave Foreman look unreasonable. And and that was his idea of, of uh, how important unreasonableness is in And lack of compromise and sticking to your principles is in this movement.
0: I've found few people more unreasonable than Dave. It was a it's a tall order right right out of the gate. Uh, (laughs) Yeah,
1: we may not find anybody. It
0: it doesn't look like we will at this point. We're still looking. I've tried. I've (laughs) tried, but it doesn't work for me.
1: We we we're not growing growing them like we used to, and that's one of the things that needs to change.
0: Yeah. Well, in uh, especially issues like we're here to talk about today, the Point Reyes and, and the, uh, the grazing, um, maybe you could give a little information about how you're attached to that and also enlighten people who don't know that grazing can even take place in a national park in this country, because that could be a surprise to a lot of people. Well, my, um, my starting point really was a picture of, of my, I found in my dad at the signing uh,
1: as JFK signs the enabling legislation for this park into law in September of 1962, and it's a great old Abbey uh, uh, Rowe, White House photographer photograph. My my dad's on the far right, and um, and on the far left is is Wayne Aspinall, who was one of his arch enemies, but but uh, who who delayed the Wilderness Bill for about four years, succeeded in in in, the, in not voting on it in Congress because he was the chairman of the Interior Committee, but um but anyway i started with that and i and i just remember that day and what a hopeful time it was and and there is grazing this park and it was a it was a it was a stopgap measure it was never intended to be permanent uh, it was a way they couldn't buy all the land they needed to when they established the park this was a way of making a transition period for for the ranchers themselves for the county and its lack of tax base uh, but but there's a myth that's grown up it's been propagated by the ranchers of the park and it's that 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 ranching is integral to this idea of this park, and was meant to be here forever. And the history is just the opposite. Um, they didn't want the park. None of the people who proposed it wanted it forever. But we now, inside the park, have a contingent of politically astute ranchers who are swaying uh, the future of the park. And the the thing that kicked the the latest controversy off was was half the elk in the in the uh, Elk Reserve in the northern end of the peninsula. Half the elk died in the drought of, of um, 2012 to 2014. They were cut off from water by a high elk-proof fence that the that the Park Service built to, to mollify ranchers. So um, this this enraged Huey Dunn, a great environmentalist we have in Marin County, and uh, former head of the Nature Conservancy and founder of the Aldo Leopold League and the Trust for public lands and the Grand Canyon Trust and he uh, was outraged and went to court sued the park service for elk neglect and for for not having uh, updated their their general management plan as they were required to do for 36 years and and for never having uh, made a study of the impact of ranching on this park uh, the court refused to dismiss it and the park service settled so now they've come up with a um, a future in which they their preferred alternative as opposed to the, the various alternatives were to have the status quo, alternative A, alternative F was to remove ranching. Well, they picked their preferred alternative B, which is to give 20-year leases to the to the ranchers to um, allow them to expand their agriculture, not reduce it, to expand it to include row crops and to and move from cattle to goats, pigs, hogs, <laughs> and chickens, and to build B and B's uh, and and retail stands in the park. And it guaranteed them, if this, this passes, if they the Park Service does go with their alternative B, it guarantees ranchers that elk, the native elk of this peninsula, will be cold in favor of cows. So wow. it's turned it's turned normal park principles upside down. And this is really what we're we're worried about and working against.
0: That is worse than I actually thought. I can't believe that list of things that you just rattled off that they also uh, I was just talking to Michael Kellett, who is who has a list of about 500 places that deserve consideration for new national parks throughout the country, which which was a shock to me. I'm like 500 because I was worried about what a national park is in the eyes and, uh, and memory of this country outside of what you just mentioned and talked about. Uh, national parks are sacrosanct they are supposed to be the pinnacle. And one of the best things that this country has ever done in its history, uh, for people to hear what you just said, uh, and this is the same National Park Service that's in charge of everybody else's favorite national parks wherever they may be, um, this is a shock. How in the world could they get it so wrong? Or maybe how powerful are is the ranching community if they can do something like this with national parks, they do it with wilderness. They do it with BLM land and forest service land ad infinitum with no power. You know, nobody can really intercede there, but here, this is a national park. How can this even be? Yes. I, I think it's um, partly because you do have a
1: contingent, a sort of fifth column of, of ranchers inside the park who, who don't understand park principles or don't care about them. It's, it's what you have in Point Reyes national seashore is a, is, is two different disparate ideals of land stewardship facing off, it, it's production versus preservation. And and this park for its whole history has had this split personality. And these uh, ranches are very effective and they're advocates, the California Farm Bureau's, the they have people on their side. Yeah. Um, the extraordinary thing to me about this has been what you mentioned about BLM land and um, and National Forest Service land and the, and the fights there. Um, What's, what's fascinating to me is that this is what we're talking about is Marin are in town of California. This is the, you know, the hot tub capital of the world is the second most affluent county in the nation. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, the land of Porsches and, and Maseratis and, you know, yoga and Pilates and recycling. And yet in this county, there's there's a tremendous number of people who are willing to see the, the park service as being the feds and being bullying the little rancher and and who accepts sort of this rancher romance and it's just extraordinary to me that it that everything we talk about in intermountain west in the sagebrush rebellion country uh the things that bernard devoto talked about in the you know the 20s and 30s the power of the stockmen in the west the disproportionate power to influence the politics of the west the whole bundy mentality that that these people who lease public lands always think of it as their own and um do not understand that they're in, on public lands. Do not understand, in, a, in the case of this national seashore, that they have to share it with wildlife. So it's all sort of—it's it, the last place I would have thought um, this this kind of um, the last place I thought you'd see the sagebrush Rebell- rebellion sort of flare up. It makes me realize how how we've we've sort of lost the idea of wilderness. It was always a hard sell. Howard of, Wilderness Society, and my father, who helped him with the language, he was the author of the Wilderness Bill, which became the Wilderness Act, they had to work a long time to get this idea across the American people. It's it's not part of our tradition. It, it's uh, The Mississippi of American culture is going the other way. It's going to ex- exploitation. This this idea of, of saving some landscape was novel, and, and it wasn't an easy sell, and it took them... Um, it took them about eight years of, of Sierra Club Wilderness Conferences, which functions as kind of think tanks to get the idea, the language for the idea in place and, forget so, and to get a constituency for it. And I think we, we we forget that we have to, I think we have to go win that battle again because because it's uh, one of the alarming things about this um, development in Point Reyes is how good environmentalists who are not of the tree hugging variety don't get it now. They call themselves environmentalists, but they they don't understand this idea of 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 saving something for itself. Good people like Michael Pollan, for example, was uh, was was against, against making uh, Drake's astero in the park a wilderness. He wanted an oyster farm there. He's a food person. Alice Waters, our great Berkeley um, restaurateur, Che Panisse. She's the uh, the sort of the queen of California cuisine. She she started edible schoolyards and stuff. She's so great on food. But she, she wanted the oysters, this oyster farm in the middle of, of the Drake's Estero in the middle of the park. <laughs> um, so we need to re-educate folks because I think this, this is a hard idea for Americans to get. And I think, it's, and they, I think they lose it easily. So um, we've got a lot of work to do.
0: That is a really good point. It, and we often get into discussions on this podcast about why whatever we're talking about seems so hard people to either understand or a bill to get passed or things to get introduced or rules to change. And you bring up a really excellent point that I think maybe the conservation community as a whole has taken for granted that everybody knows what we know. We've already done this. We already told people what wilderness is. We've already made people really appreciative of national parks and protected lands of all kinds. Why should we have to do that again? And I'm only asking that right now because. Because we can't get the simplest, we can't get past step one. Like, there shouldn't be any grazing in a national park or seashore. Like, that, that should just, and everybody should just know that. I expected everybody to know that. But you're right. It's, if, if I was a betting man, <laughs> and I, and I, and you said, give me the, the biggest slam dunk of something getting completely refused and, and, and pushed away, um, and you can pick any place in the country, I would pick Point Reyes. Because uh, demographically and everything else, just like you said, there's no reason it should be. I think you're right. Uh, my, my dad had a a line that um,
1: may be pretty obvious, but he he used it a lot. He said um, they have to only have to win once. They being the exploiters, the extractive industries, the miners, the loggers, the the ranchers. They they only have to win once. We have to win every time. And I I sort of extend that now to mean we have to keep this education up. I think I had the same problem you do i I you know my I'm a writer i i um I talk to you know biologists who are in the field working on these problems. I deal with people who 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 understand the wilderness principle understand what it what these places mean and what they're for but but this this episode in point raises reminded me um that so many people don't and and um it's it's it is not a natural thing for Americans we still we still are sort of Enthralled to this this myth of the frontier a little bit and 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 the idea that the land has to be beaten back and has to produce. There's so many people think, well, why 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 not have an oyster farm in there? Why not why not have it produce something? You know, what's the point of having this uh, land locked up as they used to always say? And, and I think we need to we just need to re-educate it. We, we we just need to get the idea out there again. In the books my father and I used to do for the Sierra Club, we always had a, a section called the idea section. Which was just to, to broach this idea again in every book of what we're talking about, what Aldo Leopold was talking about, what Dave Foreman is talking about. Um, why? Why these places? Why these places are important? They're they're an example of how the how, how the world works without man. Uh, they're they're a laboratory. They're they're a place where we can learn fr- from our mistakes. It, they're a place where. Um, And above all, they're a place that would be important for themselves, for the for the animals that live there with no relation to our benefit. And um, these are ideas that just need to be promulgated again.
0: You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. If you look at what people are talking about out on social media when they're doing their action alerts, when they're talking about their issues, they're not using very easy fodder for their arguments because they don't know it exists. They haven't read Sand County Almanac, maybe some of them ever. Like, (laughs) you know, I mean, and I think we really are taking that for granted um, when we get frustrated that people aren't understanding the next level of issues. Now, combine that with the fact that the other side's favorite pastime is rewriting history. So while, it's eroding from our end because we might not be doing that education as much as we should be uh, and making sure that the younger people coming up have that really good foundation. But at the same time, the other side loves to rewrite history. They're picking away at it and saying, no, it wasn't really what Brower said it was. It's this, this is what wilderness means. It should be used. There should be oysters in it and everything else. And with those two combined, it creates a perfect storm to probably predict that we would be where we are today with issues like point Reyes.
1: No, I agree. Um, and, um, you know, part of this may be that everybody is in their screens and who, who do, do people get out in the wilderness enough anymore? Um, I, I got, imp- and maybe you too got imprinted early by this and, and, um, and, uh, but that needs to happen. People need to get out in it. People are ready for it. So, uh, my experience with, with everybody, I've known inner city kids that I've taken to point race over the years. Um, Instantly get it. They, and they tell me, I've, I've, people who've come back to me, you know, Black kids from that came out there 50 years ago, they say, Ken, do you remember that day we went to Point Reyes? You know, what EO Wilson calls, um, we're programmed for this, biophilia. It's where we grew up. We, we evolved in wilderness. It wasn't, you know, way before agriculture, way before fire even, probably. That's where we, we started. And it's home. And And people are ready for it, I think, when they see it. But we need to get them into it more. And when you talk about rewriting history, there's no no more wonderful example of what's happening in Point Reyes right now. Um, number one, there's this myth that the ranchers were intended to be there forever. They've even, there's even this myth that they were the prime movers in establishing the park. It, it was at their behest that the government acted, which is which is the opposite of the truth. They fought it tooth and nail in the beginning. But the, the rewriting of history there, for example, the idea that, that cattle are good for landscape. You you have a lot of people who say this. Oh well, they 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 graze off the uh unfavorable, you know, the exotic uh weeds, the invasives. Well it's just completely untrue. Anybody who knows anything about the history of the West knows they've been a disaster for our public lands, riparian zones, for, you know, sage hens, for any number of things. They're terrible. They're a terrible use of the landscape. Uh they're inefficient use of water and, and of and of land and they um and they ruin landscape. So but this myth is, and you'll see scholars now. You'll have scholars sort of enthralled to the myth of, of the ranch, saying of ranching, is saying that this that cattle actually are good for the land. So we're up against this fake news and this and this uh, rewriting of history. Um, in fact, Point Reyes, the the prime greenhouse gas um, emission, according to the Park Service in Point Reyes, is methane from the either end of a cow. It's not the exhaust from 2.5 million visitors every year. It's cows. They're primarily contributing to climate change in that park. Is that the kind of, you know, the example we want our national parks to to hold? The water, some of the most polluted streams are in the the western slope of of Point Reyes National Seashore. Um, The park superintendent every year has has to help ranchers get waivers from compliance with the Clean Water Act. Is that the kind of thing we want our park superintendent to be doing? What effect is that having on her morale? You know, she knows what she, what her correct job as a, as a superintendent of a national park is. What, what happens to her when she has to do this kind of venal uh, uh, you know, work? The biomass of cattle on the
0: planet is twice that of humanity. Do we need more cattle in our national parks? Uh, it's just nuts. I don't want to be a downer, but... <laughs> There's so much work to be done that it seems, you know, going backwards to think that we have to provide that lack of education when everybody had thought everybody was caught up while we're also fighting current issues. But, it, but I think the hopeful part of that is that it's the reason, probably one of the biggest reasons that we are fighting the current issues such as they are because that education hasn't been there and it um, may not have been transferred to the next generation properly, as well as our elders would have liked. And as you talk, I just keep coming up with examples of battles and issues raging around the country that are not being fought with all of the ammunition that we have. And the other guys, man, I hate to say this, but there's probably some other guys on the other side who know the history better than a lot of people on our team and know how to take advantage of that. And they win a lot. Yeah, but it's always been you know it's always been a hard swim up the
1: current of this of this society, and it's it's it was never easy from the beginning. And as you say, we you know you're probably right. We probably shouldn't have to do this education all over again, but we better, um, because um, we're, we're losing on the idea front. And um, one of my thoughts is that we you know we don't have enough of the guys who are pa- the religion guys. My dad used to call it the religion. You know, environmentalism makes a very good religion. You just you just you worship creation as opposed to the creator. The creator is a sort of a tricky, elusive character. Who is, but creation is right there, and you can see it, and it you can smell it, and taste it, and hear it. And and that was that was what my father's uh, you know the sort of the salvation of creation was what he was up to. But it was a passion. And I think one of the things that we have now is, is sort of technocrats in, in the movement—people who are oh you know people who are, are good at at, at uh, probably good in Washington getting things through and. We don't have the guys that are the guys with a voice, uh the Thoreau's uh, or the or the or even Teddy Roosevelt or people like my dad or people like Dave Foreman who, you know, who would get the who would get Arionience I I ever saw him talk to, howling like a wolf at the end, as I'm sure you've seen. But we need that type we need that type again, the guys who can use the language and have passion. And, uh, I've seen uh, some of, some of these old guys are still around Nader. Once Paul, uh, Ralph Nader gets warmed up, he, he, he flames, you know, we need people who, who can like Foreman and like my dad, who, after they talk to a college audience, have people trooping down the aisle to sign up and, and, um, and remembering that this is a cause. It's not a, not a profession so much. It's a cause. And, and, uh, we need more of that because um, I, I suppose a good example is what happened to Dave Foreman and, and the Wilderness Society, you know, how it went from a real good grassroots outfit that fought hard, got taken over by sort of a sort of a money guy, and um, and this is the other thing that's happened is is too much corporate influence on boards. Um, got to raise funds now, but but at the same time, too much too much corporate influence just changes the frame of mind uh, on these boards and. And you don't get the kind of daring and risk taking that, that, that the old guard used to do at the birth of this movement. The birth of this movement is recent. And, and there was a, you know, there's a kind of a freshness to anything that's newborn that's it's, got to fade. But we've got to try to pump, you know, pump that freshness back in.
0: Yeah, I wonder about that corporate influence. I, I wonder if the exception, if you would consider Patagonia uh, the Dave Foreman of corporations. They seem to have a good influence and let people do what they need to do without messing with their mission too much. Is all corporate influence, and I know the majority is, but is all of it bad?
1: No, Patagonia is great. And, and Yvonne Chouinard is, you know, who, who comes from the same tradition. He's, he started like like my old man as a climber, and, and um, he's great. And and what they've done there is tremendous sub. Um, and, and so there are examples of corporate responsibility in this area. Um, there are just too few, um, right? Way and it see. really is an area we, we have to, my dad used to say, you know, until we get this stuff mainstream, until, until we get the corporate world, uh, sort of imbued with this ethos, um, it's not going to work because this, this is what makes our society worse. And if we don't get business engaged, it's, it's not going to happen. So, so this is it's another thing we have to do as you say it's a lot it's a lot of work but but it's it's always been like that we've got to just roll up our sleeves and and, and do it get more patagonias out there ray anderson's outfit his carpets was was great and and there are a few of these people who really mean it and um and there's some sign that with with recognition of climate change that that more people are going uh, more people in the corporate world are, are serious about it recognizing that climate change threatens corporations <laughs>
0: When current CEOs of corporations were just kids would have been a perfect opportunity for them to have that moment, that defining moment that so many people can point to where they started to form their conservation ethic, their land ethic, you know, and the second best time for that to happen would be now. And we can't stop and we shouldn't probably also uh, mythologize the people who came before us as if it was a cakewalk for them, for your dad, for Zonizer for everybody that they really were awfully hard workers. That's one of the things that's a thread through all of the interviews I've ever heard with Dave is is somebody will allude to how hard working he was and how driven he was and how he set, he kind of got everybody else welled up in that orbit when they were in his presence.
1: Were you talking about your Dave Foreman, which that would be true of, or my my father Dave Brower? Your, um, your dad and have, Foreman. Yeah, yeah. yeah those no, guys both worked their true. butts off. <laughs> I've never known anybody who just lived, every, worked every moment. It was tough on my mom. It was tough on the kids sometimes because he traveled, you know, maybe seventy percent of the time to talk and and lobby. And but it, but he, I've never known anybody work so hard. And um, he had enormous physical energy. And I've always wondered how it worked—whether a passenger generated the energy or or. The physical energy <clears throat> was just physiological and it found its way into environmental action. But, but whatever it was, it was very hard work. And as I say, Zani and Zanizer and my dad, when they were getting the Wilderness Act together, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was calculated. It was a long, they said, we've got to get these wilderness conferences going to, to get the language, to get people involved, engaged and to, to sort of establish an agenda. And they worked, you know, I, I,
0: about eight years at that. And uh, so it's not, it's not easy there are people like you who are carrying this flag forward and your writings. Uh, you're, you're getting ready to publish something about the Marshall islands. And I'm sure that that writing is going to be imbued with principles that we learned, um, for your dad and so many others. And, and that's going to be a different book about the Marshall islands than most any other book would be.
1: It is. And it is the, my father, my father, there was no audience too, too small for my dad. Um, even his four little kids at the dinner table, he was always evangelizing. There was no way we could escape this message. It wasn't just that we were brought to the wilderness of the Sierra when we were, you know, five and six years old, but it was because we were introduced to this idea—the idea, the idea of, of wilderness and the idea of the importance of of unspoiled natural world. That does animate everything I, I do. I, I think all my ideas sort of came from my old man, uh, and um it's sort of depra- in a way I you know I grew up in Berkeley during the people's park and the and the Mario Savio movement and all that stuff I couldn't I couldn't quite get engaged because I I I really believe that the more important movement was this one the, the my dad used to say that um it, it's the one it's the one cause that has to succeed we can muddle through with everything else um we can probably muddle through with less than perfect social justice and, and women's rights and civil rights, and, but we have to have a we have to have a planet to live on. If we don't get that right, then nothing else succeeds, and and I and I believe that I, I believe it's a very important cause, and, and um and it's uh, among a lot of progressives today. I think it takes second or third place to, to like social justice. I I don't think that's the way we should look at it. I think social justice is is dependent on it. Um, we're going to see an awful lot of social injustice if, if climate change um, goes the way it looks like it's going. We're going to see an awful lot of uh, mass migrations of, of people here and elsewhere. Um, and as we get more and more crowded, we're going to get more and more autocratic. That's the way it
0: works. So uh, Democracies don't work so well when they get completely jammed with people. I just got little jolts thinking this feels like losing a language. Almost, also, that we we are in danger of losing a culture that was developed that we all didn't even know was in danger. Yeah, I think you're right. This is one of the things that I'm concerned with in the this uh, Marshall
1: Islands book I'm doing. I've been uh, done four books on Micronesia, and it's a place I love. The Marshalls are all coral atolls. They're all going to go under, and they're a wonderful culture, and, and it's a wonderful system. the the um, The coral reef um, is is. You know the second most diverse ecosystem on the planet, and and it's all at risk now. So um yeah, what you say is right. Rewilding, uh, rewilding is is what we need to do, and the reason is that um, natural systems manage themselves way better than we do. Every time we try, we mess it up. I mean, every time uh, the the history of our hubris and trying to to think we can we can we can manage nature. We
0: we always we always screw up. It is also a very easy thing, I think, for people to understand when you just say nature knows best. Nature always, everybody would agree with that. Nature knows best, except for people who think that, you know, wolves don't belong around their elk because they want to hunt more elk and they think less wolves equals more elk, despite the chronic wasting disease.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think um, it's one of the things that, that the right wing has done much better and, and the progressive wing of, of our politics, and, and that was because they lost so much. They had so many Democratic presidents. They actually sat down and said, and worked out a, a strategy. And <clears throat> all this money went into think tanks, and they came up with the language. And I think it may be actually trickier to come up with the language than we think, because because it needs to reach across to people who are less familiar with nature than we are. And 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 finding language is going to be important, because for example, in in we, we have a lot of resistance. Uh, now from right-wing evangelicals well well what we're talking about is is, is salvation of creation of, of you know the Lord's work um we need to make that argument better um this is this is what we're about really where this was the gift we were given on this planet and we've been trashing it and it's it's a, I would say a duty for Christian or or any religious person to to maintain creation this is an argument we've begun to make and there was some it's, it's fallen off a little lately, but um, we need to get evangelicals on our side.
0: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem so hard to get evangelicals on your side, you know, given present uh, <laughs> situations, well, I won't mention, but I mean, yeah, it, it, and it is something, it's, it's, it's a re-education on their part. Another part of history that's been rewritten is exactly what the Bible says about creation, and they've just bastardized that stewardship thing completely to death and but it, it has been because it's been repeated so many times it is now the understanding the general understanding i think of most uh christians is that we're on top and nothing else is as special as us we're exceptional and yeah. everything else is our flock and 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 ours to do with what we want it's
1: true I'm, i mean it's one of it was a, one of my dad's lines you know the and he was he was just stunned when he learned it it was not till fairly late in his life that the the correct Translation of Aramaic in the Bible um, for this word that we call uh, dominion, which is stewardship, which is the opposite of dominion. Uh, it's 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 responsibility to take care of it as opposed to master it. And and this is a huge you know as you say this is a huge somatic difference. And and that does it would be a great way a great thing to to bring home to people. And I think people would respond to it. Nobody you know dominion. Is you know mastery over something as opposed to stewardship of it. Yeah, get the make make sure people understand the, what the language really means. So many people have the view that that environmentalists are exaggerating, that they're chicken littles, and it's people who are just not looking around them. Because look look what's happening. I mean, the place is burning up and it's flooding. The, people don't really get how grave this is. Nobody was talking climate change 40 years ago. My dad started talking about it in '54. But nobody was talking about it then. And now, now we see it all around us. We, we know it's there. My question is, what what else is coming down the pipeline? We didn't know this was coming down at us um, 40 years ago. The, the the great majority of people didn't know. What else, what other legacy of this abuse of the planet is shaping up right now to hit us next? And and guaranteed there is something. Um, this is a complicated little ecosphere we live on. And, We've been abusing it for a long time. It's another argument for wilding. Even if we, it, it, it's it's going to go to stuff we don't even know that we've done wrong yet. To try to get natural systems back, uh, l- later we can figure out what was about to come down and hit us. But people have got to understand, and they got to look around and, and realize that this is this is not just a bunch of environmentalists. It's what's happening. We're losing the planet, and and we've lost so much of the biodiversity and the fecundity of this planet already. And there's people who just, just don't believe it. They don't, they don't understand the, the scale.
0: Well, let's bring it back to Point Reyes. What can people who are really hyped up now, they love what you said today, very, very concerned about what they've learned about this place that should not be in the situation that it is, what can they do to help make sure that it gets uh, our full support?
1: The public comment period closed in September, so that option is gone. But everybody who feels this way should write to their representative and and their own congressman and and write the write the National Park Service in Point Reyes and um, and give your views because this decision is being made right now and it and it could come out any day and it's and they're aiming for the wrong decision they're aiming to perpetuate ranching uh, because of course it's inimical to the the principles of, of of a national park. And this is one of the few, as you pointed out at the beginning, this is one of the few parks that does have grazing in it and it needs to be eliminated.
0: All right, everybody, you've got your marching orders. Uh, Don't just sit there and be bummed out about stuff. Uh, Probably the best tonic to that that I've ever found is going and writing a letter, taking some sort of action, and getting to work. Ken, thank you so much for for taking the time to be on Rewilding Earth, and I definitely, definitely want to have you back. I want to have you back, especially when we won this one, so we can just take a victory lap. That's the spirit, and thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.